Praise the Lord. All my shame was met with mercy. Hallelujah for the cross. I want to sing them again. Let's, let's just start from the top. Let's sing it again. Let's, let's uh, continue worshiping the Lord together with the reading of God's word. First Peter, we're uh, just getting started on a series of sermons entitled Heading Home. Uh, and uh, I believe that's what Peter is telling us in his letter, that we're not home yet. The world is not our home. We're heading home. And so I'll read two different passages to get us going to preach a sermon entitled Living as Exiles. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 1 through 3. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, I want you to see the word, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then, just in case we didn't get it yet, chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that even when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray together. And then God, we're going to ask you right now to use your word to to teach us, instruct us, correct us, inform us, transform us. And I pray that we will readily see that those who belong to Jesus are living in this life, in this brief life life as exiles, as sojourners. So free us up from the foolishness of trying to make our home in the world when we're actually heading home so that we may represent you well and actually do good in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have right here in my coat one of the most valuable things you can have in the world. I'm going to show it to you. Here it is. Very valuable. It is a passport. And it is a passport that right here on the front says United States of America. And the reason that I have this passport is because I am an American citizen. And when I travel to other countries, you go through customs and you show your passport and been to other places. And then I love to go to other places, but I have to be honest with you, I also love coming back home. It's just a relief to be able to go through. And so here is my picture I'm glad that you can't see it. My children love to look at this picture because it's a terrible, terrible picture. And then they stamp it and I'm home. I hold citizenship in America. Well, in Peter's day, uh, having Roman citizenship had a lot of implications. I mean, you just think about the Apostle Paul when he's on trial and they find out, whoa, you're actually a citizen of Rome. We got to do this trial differently. Maybe you've heard of something called dual citizenship. You've heard of that, right? Dual citizenship is where you have two separate countries where you maintain citizenship. A person is a national of two different countries at the same time. Let's just keep going on this train of thought. Have you ever heard of a resident alien? What is a resident alien? A resident alien is a foreign national living on an official basis in a country of which they're not a citizen. So... Spiritually speaking, 
as a follower of Jesus, what is the best way of understanding your identity in the world? How many of you are the person at your house that checks the mail? Y'all still check the mail, right? Get the mail. How do you know, how do you know who the letter is for? If it has your name on it. Sometimes it'll just say resident, right? And you know that's probably not anything personal. It's just an advertisement, right? Or if your house, if you get somebody that's a, a letter that's addressed to you, you know it's for you. I know I'm stating the obvious, but it's really important, and we're going to take most of this morning to talk about this letter is written, it's addressed to exiles, and it's addressed to sojourners. So the way that you have to understand your identity in the world is your identity isn't in the world. Does that make sense? Friends, you'll never be any good for the world as long as you think you belong to the world. You won't. You've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and Peter addresses his audience as exiles. Because I, I can't help but think that often we want dual citizenship. Yes, I'm on my way to heaven, and yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I still have a foot here in the world. And friends, at the cross is where you renounce citizenship that you no longer belong to the world, but have been born again. You were born into the world, you're born again into the kingdom, which means your citizenship no longer belongs to the world. That means you don't have the same priorities. You don't have the same, same um, desires. And ultimately, as we talked last week, you don't have the same hope. However you want to uh, describe being born again, let's describe it in the way that Peter says. According, verse 3, to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And there's no other way of saying it but to say, if you haven't transformed your hope from what you used to hope in to now hoping in Christ, you've not been born again. Your hope is at the deepest level. Everybody's living by fear and hope. So let's uh, use 1 Peter to, to talk about some things uh, this morning. Let's start with this first point. Disciples of Jesus Christ live as exiles in the world. Peter begins by saying, I'm representing somebody, verse 1, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. So being born again isn't turning over a new leaf, it's it's a, it's a transformation that takes place in your heart and goes to the deepest level of who you are as a person. So again, everything you do in life is on the basis of what you hope in. Some people hope in money, right? If I just had a little bit more of it, my life would be better. Or, or some people hope in their education. If I can just earn that degree, uh, I think we said it this way last week, you know what your hope is when you answer this question or fill in this blank. My life will be better when, and then you fill in the blank, right? Or my life would be better if, and however you fill in the blank gets you real close to you knowing what your hope really is. Some people hope in finding the right person. Some people hope in the government. Some people hope in their children. Some people, many people, hope in themselves. Well, look what Jesus, uh, uh, was revealed about Jesus here in 1 Peter 1, 3. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. All hopes other than Christ are not living hopes, they're killing hopes. And, and he says, when, you, when you're born again, you get an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Every other hope perishes, defiles, and fades. Amen? Now, now I encourage you, you'll learn that one of two ways, either by experience, 
what you used to hope in just fades, perishes, it defiles. Or you can trust that God is telling you the truth up front. Because here's the dynamic in the world. You see there, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace always go together. So it also says that this inheritance, who's, who's guarding it? You're not guarding it. He's made the covenant on the basis of his character. You're going to inherit eternal life, and you're not protecting that. You're not guarding it. I mean, this is what he says. To an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you, and God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be real in the last time. Now, here's the human condition. If your hope is your money, your hope is your education, your hope is your children, who's guarding that hope? I can go on and tell you, God's not. God's not guarding those hopes. So now you feel compelled to do the guarding yourself, don't you? Nobody's going to touch my money, my stuff, my life. And that is the way citizens of the world think. And now if it's up to you to guard those hopes, do you know two things? One thing you'll never extend and one thing you'll never have are grace and peace. You're not going to extend grace to anybody because you get territorial, spiritually speaking. This is my stuff. Anyone who follows me must take up his cross to follow me. It's renouncing that now I no longer hope in what I used to hope in. I have a living hope. And now I'm freed up in the world to not be a graceless person, but a grace-filled person. And I don't have to tear you down or take from you because my inheritance is coming. It's liberating, isn't it? That's why the Romans had no idea what to do with this group of people. They have no uh, worldly possessions. These exiles, this original audience here, they've got no political power. They've got no clout. They've got no wealth. They've got no status. But they have Christ. And they have a hope that is imperishable. So it's helpful to know, man, if your hope is in your appearance, in approval, in popularity, if you've got to get just the right angle on the picture before you can post it on Instagram, and then once you put that picture up, you've got to keep going back to see how many... You want me to do that again? You can almost hear that. You have to see how many likes it gets. You know what that's called? captivity or man if your hope is in your money that does some things to your heart friends Christ has come out of the tomb living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to reconcile me to God so that I would no longer look to creation what can only be found in the creator and when Christ came up out of the grave he's telling you two things at once here's a living hope and here's all the other things that are killing hopes have you been born again to a living hope? So now I can know the living God through his son who redeemed me out of the pit. So set my feet on solid ground. So, so pardon me if I don't have my mood and joy determined by the stock market anymore. It's not my hope. Pardon me if, if, if my joy in life is not on the basis of the election result, the latest hit show on Netflix, the last report from my doctor, or whether or not my team won the game this weekend. That's not my hope. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to obtain, abstain from the passions of your flesh. The passions of your flesh are leading you to try to guard those false hopes. They are waging war against your soul. 
So a couple things on this matter of disciples of Jesus Christ living as exiles in the world. Is first, let's see that you're not assimilated into the world. You are living in a country of which you are not a citizen. That's what, that's what Peter is telling us. But on one hand, you're not a tur- tourist. Is it tourist or tourist? I don't ever know. You're not just kind of passing through. Let's see some sights. That's not what he says. Look, look. Uh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when, not if, but when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You don't become assimilated into the world. We've probably both had these experiences if you've ever traveled overseas or known someone who's come from another country just to be here. In college, I had a, a freshman year, uh, someone in my, our dorm who uh, had traveled from um, another country, and he was pretty good at English, but he was still learning some nuances. Now, I don't know if you didn't, a, a native speaker of English, how you would ever learn English. It's just so complicated, right? And so this guy, one uh, morning I saw him, and he said, good morning. And I said, good morning. And then a little bit later on in the evening, he came and knocked on my door, opened the door, and he said, good night. And in his mind, he said the equivalent of what he said in the morning. It makes sense. I mean, why do we say good morning as a greeting, but good night is a goodbye? That doesn't make any sense. And I said, well, good, goodbye or good night. And I started to close the door. And he says, what are you doing? I'm here to hang out. Well, I, you just said good night. Good night. And it's lost in translation a little bit, right? We're not syncing up. You shouldn't sync up. Do not be conformed. Who knows this verse? but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It happened to me also when I traveled uh, to, to Haiti, on the other end, being in a culture and country that's not my own, and uh, a team of us had traveled there uh, 10 plus years ago now, and uh, we were traveling to villages and distributing food, and uh, after the earthquake that had happened there, and uh, the kids are just awesome, such a joy to be around, but I noticed that they would all, always come up to me and they would say a little something. It's to, to my ears, it sounded like they're saying, Poco, Poco. And uh, I, I was traveling back to where we were sleeping and staying overnight and had my translator with me. And I said, hey, uh, I've noticed that when I'm with the kids, they, they, they kind of run up to me and they say something. And to my ears, it sounds like they're saying Poco. And my translator said, yes, yes, it's a nickname. And I asked, so what does it mean? And he said, don't worry about it. It's just a nickname. <laughs> and, and I said, uh, I understand that, but, but what does it mean? And I could tell he was kind of hesitant to, to say. And so I said, it's okay. Hey, you, you can tell me. You can let me know. He said, in your language, I think it means fatso. <laughs> but then he kind of patted me. He says, I promise they... Uh, it's supposed to be endearing, I think is what he said. So, so in America, in America, I'd never really had anybody call me fatso. A 215-pound man is 215-pound man. But, but in a place in the world where they might get a bowl of rice a day, what are, what are the markers in your life that you don't belong to the world? It's just evident. It's just evident that he's not from around here. Heart's not set on these things. What, what you hope in, what you love, what you long for, what you work for, where you find your rest 
is different. I'll put a passage on the screen. It's Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, and verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, again, the address, Matthew 5, 1, I think it is, that he sat down on a mountain and his disciples came to him and he began to talk to them. So the, ad- uh, the, the recipients of this message are his followers. You are the salt of the earth. Now, when Jesus is speaking at this time and place, salt is among the most valuable commodities in the world. I mean, entire economies are built around salt. You've probably even heard the phrase, he's not worth his salt. How many of you have ever heard that? He's not worth his salt. Well, that comes from the fact that Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. And so to be said, you're not worth your salt means that you haven't earned your keep. You haven't, uh, you haven't worked in a way that, that uh, is commensurate with being, with being paid. And Jesus is referring to something that everybody in those days could understand. If you're carrying salt, often in these uh, canvas bags, and there was a was spill, and the salt would spill out, it would get mixed in with the dirt. Now, once that happens, you can't just come along and scoop it back into the canvas and say, oh, don't worry about it. No, it's, it's lost its purpose. Now, the, the salt, what is it for? Well, Jesus is teaching at a time before refrigeration. So salt acts as a preservative And that's who you are to be in the world. You should live as a preservative. Now, I think we would be able to say, in the last generation, spiritually, we've seen a whole lot of decay. Question, who's responsible for that? Now, now, in Jesus' day, they wouldn't come around some unsalted meat and say, man, I can't believe that's spoiled. They would have said, why didn't you put some salt on it? That's your role in the world, friends. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to condemn the world for being the world. It makes every, every bit of sense to say, have we as his people lost our saltiness? Uh, maybe a good way of understanding it is a little bit of an equivalent, I think. So the thing about it this past week is, uh, you know in your house when the power goes out? You notice when the power goes out? It changes everything, doesn't it? And then you worry that at our house, rule number one at our house is, don't open the fridge. Keep it in there. We want to preserve, right? It's, it's, it's a little bit like Jesus saying, you're the electricity of the world. And the power goes out for an extended period of time, like Texas last winter or the storms in Louisiana recently. We all can understand the difficulty that, that life as we know it simply does not function smoothly without electrical power. How many benefits are lost when that interruption takes place? And, and Jesus is saying, it's sort of like him saying, you're the electrical power of the world, but if the electricity goes out, it's not good for anything anymore. You are the salt. If your hope is in Christ, you will be Salty, if we can put it that way. You're not to assimilate. The picture of assimilation is that dirt, that, uh, the salt that spills on the dirt, and now what it was supposed to preserve from has become like. And so the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be distinct from the world in which we live. We've all heard the statement, uh, you should be in the world but not of the world. Well, I think we've arrived at a time where we are of the world but not in the world. So, so first, you don't assimilate with the world, but, but next, secondly, you don't withdraw from the world. 
Neither are you withdrawn from the world. Because we can get it in our minds, well, I don't want to assimilate with the world, so I'll just separate myself from the world. And guess what? Jesus corrects us on that matter too. Same, same passage, next verse. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14, 15, and 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you don't assimilate with the world, but neither do you withdraw from the world. In Jesus' day, there is a group of people known as the Essenes, and they just completely withdrew from society. They lived in caves and copied scripture. That was what they did. Because they concluded everybody and everything is corrupt. The government's corrupt. The religious leaders are corrupt. The morality of society is corrupt. Everything was corrupt. And so they said, we're just going to completely withdraw and we're going to go live in these caves and we're copy scripture. And by the way, that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from. It took till 1947, a little shepherd boy threw a rock in a cave and he heard something break and he walks in and here's all these clay pots with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah because they'd lived in the caves, copied the scripture. And what's Jesus saying? Don't do that. Don't go live in a cave. They were the original live off the gritters, right? Just going to withdraw. But Jesus is telling us you don't withdraw. In the same way that we say uh, there's been so much decay, you ever look around and say, man, where did all this darkness come from? Jesus just told us. You got a light and you just keep putting it under a basket. So, so you're never going to um, draw a world that you withdraw from. Hey, the people of God have always been in exile. Have you noticed this? Have you read your Bible? People of God have always been in exile. Abraham was called away from his home. Israel and Egypt, Israel and Babylon. And now we're here, New Testament church. The whole human race has been in, in exile since the fall. Nobody's home. Since we were banished from Eden, the condition of the whole human race is we're not where we belong. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, the whole human race is in exile. We've lost Eden. Therefore, the world is not home anymore. There's death here. We're always losing loved ones and always losing love. Evil is triumphing. In no way does this fit. If you believe this world is all there is and all there ever will be, you're constantly in exile. If you believe that, why are you so unhappy? If you evolved here, shouldn't you just fit? Why is it that our hearts and souls haven't adapted? Because home is actually in the presence of God. Second point is as exiles in the world, you will suffer in the world. As exiles in the world, you will suffer in the world. Unfortunately, the sinful human condition is such that people don't often treat well those who aren't from around here. A marker of the people of God is they always extend compassion and grace. Matthew 5, 10, and 12. You can tell that Peter had heard the Sermon on the Mount on the basis of his letter, can't you? He was listening. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all sorts of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. Look at it. In heaven, at home, not here, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
And then again, we've read it before, but we'll read it again. 1 Peter 2.11, your sojourner, exile, abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that's written by a man who's going to be crucified, Peter. Isn't, isn't uh, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 a bit of a combination of what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, what we've read? You're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, you're to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Hey, in the early church, they were persecuted, often killed, and grew in number of followers rapidly. I'll say that again. In the early church, they were persecuted, often killed, and grew in numbers rapidly, hap- both happening at the same time. That's strange, isn't it? Why? Because in the world... The gospel of Jesus Christ is simultaneously both attractive and offensive. Always has been, always will be. Jesus, as he ministered, was he attractive to people or offensive to people? Yes. Why is that? Well, in the early church, they had three things in particular that were strangely offensive and attractive at the same time in their communities. First of all, they were incredibly generous to the poor. And in that world, it's just not something that was done. I mean, they kind of had an understanding that if things weren't going well, well, that's kind of on you. You might take care of your own, you know, a child or a family member who met hard times, but to care for the poor that weren't your own, that was just simply not something that was done. And you've read about the early church, right? sell everything they have so that nobody would be in need. And that was just strangely offensive and attractive. Second in the Roman world was their sexual ethics. Man, they just didn't fit in at all. In the, in the Greco-Roman world, the physical body just has appetites and you just satisfy them. And sex is really no different than your appetite for food. And if you're hungry, fulfill your appetite. But the Christians viewed sex as sacred and viewed it really as a sacred way for one person to tell one other person that my body is just for you because my soul is just for you in marriage. Nobody else lived like that. It was incredibly offensive and very attractive. And then third, man, they just approached death with joy. They lived as if death wasn't the end. They lived as if all the really good things were still to come. And so the world around them says, we've never seen anybody sacrifice their own comfort to care for the poor like them. We've never seen a man and a woman devote themselves to one another, not just physically, but in every way to serve one another. We've never seen anyone approach death quite like them. They've got no status. They've got no wealth. They've got no power. They are so strangely attractive. May God give us grace that in our generation... We live like this. I'm not sure that's the current reputation of Christians today, but it should be. And the only reason it could be that way is if Christians want dual citizenship. And that would look like a people claiming to have a living hope who don't care about the poor, don't have a spirit-led sex life, and aren't ready to die. So you should be both offensive and attractive. I'm going to quote Tim Keller one more time. He says, if you're only offensive and not attractive, 
you're probably just a self-righteous person who just tells people what's wrong with them. But if you're attractive but never offensive, you're probably cowardly and just trying to make people happy. You need courage and compassion. Jesus was both. And, and isn't, that, isn't that what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12? I urge you as sojourners, sojourner is someone on their way, not a settler, a sojourner, and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh. Man, if you just view the world as your home, uh, in fact, this is the anthem of our culture. Don't abstain from the passions of your flesh. Live up all the passions of your flesh. But they're actually doing something. This is helpful for you to see. The passions of your flesh are actually waging war against your soul. So the more you, the more you seek to uh, fulfill the desires of your flesh, the worse state your soul is actually going to be in. We're told if you obey the desires of the flesh, that's real freedom. Jesus says here, or the Lord says in his word, that's actually captivity. Verse 11, don't assimilate. Verse 12, don't withdraw. So where is it that you can kind of distinguish? Am, am I really got a heart that's set on heading home? And First Peter, we'll see this again and again and again and again. The answer to the question is, how can I know? The answer is when you suffer. Again and again, we'll see this. Suffering, hardship in the world provides the backdrop for you to declare what your hope really is. So when they lose their possessions, they don't, they're not crushed because that's not where their hope is. For when your hope is Christ. God is guarding your inheritance and no one can take it from you. Got one more point. Number three, as exiles in the world, you seek to do good in and for the world. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? So you're living a strangely attractive and offensive life in the world, but, but now when they go to speak against you, that everything wrong in the world is you, and if you weren't around, things would be better. Somebody else quickly points, speaks up and says, well, wait, 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 man, they've really helped me. Nobody else was there for me. They were. When I was sick, they cared for me. You get a little bit of good Samaritan life going on, right? I, I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful to see that Peter does not expect the good Christians do in the world to be recognized until the day of visitation. So he doesn't say when they speak evil against you as evildoers that they may see your good deeds and glorify God today. That's not what he says. You're putting some things away for the future. Peter is calling us to look to a particular day that informs what we do today and it's Glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? That's the day of the Lord. You know what the day of visitation is? That's the day your exile ends. And we're no longer heading home. We're home because he's come back for us. And now we're going to be with him. So when that day comes, that's when the unbelievers say, oh, that's what they've been doing. 
That's why they cared about the poor like they did. That's why they had the sexual ethics that they have. That's why they were approaching this moment of death with such confidence and, and joy. So what we as followers of Jesus have to ask is, what will you have wanted to have done in your life on that day? And let that day inform what you do with your money, with your time, with your appearance, with the brief life that you have, with your words, with, with your life. Be because, because on that day, he doesn't start being your living hope then if he's not now. So whose life is better off because of you today? Who do you know? Again, we're living for his glory, not my kingdom. We want them to glorify God. Who will glorify God on the day of visitation because of the good works you have done in the name of Jesus on their behalf? All this points to Jesus, doesn't it? Everything that we have said this morning that is true of a follower of Jesus is true of him. So we're following him. We can't follow him and not become like him. Was Jesus assimilated with the world? No. Was Jesus withdrawn from the world? Absolutely not. Did Jesus suffer for righteousness sake more than anyone else? He lacks neither courage nor compassion. And the way into his kingdom is the way of his kingdom. Are you following this Jesus? Because the most common thing human beings do is they establish this is what hope really looks like. And then we project that on God and then judge his character and faithfulness on the basis of the hope we say he should be providing for us. Have you been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Give a concluding uh, illustration. Yesterday uh, uh, I ran a 5K and uh, Abel and I got there together, and we're going to run together. And I like to say I kept up with him for the first four seconds. But we, we, uh, we line up at a starting line, and they arrange us, and we're going to all start at the same time. And here's the starting line. Here's the courses marked out. You know, we could have gone online ahead of time and looked at the map and said, here's where we're going to go and run you three, a little over three miles. And, and uh, I got to the starting line and knew the course. And this is so, this is so silly probably sinful, I started to look around and started to kind of measure myself. And, and I'll just say, I said, uh, I think I can keep up with so-and-so. And then we started running and I said, I was wrong about that. <laughs> but I know I can finish before so-and-so. And then I was wrong about that. And I just, just, just the whole, whole run was basically me changing who I was measuring myself by. Right? And, and then we come on around the finish line and they're so kind. It's usually what they do. They got people there to applaud. You know, yeah, you did it, you made it, and finish line, and you got your little racing bib, and you go, and I go to the screen, and it's scrolling, and I'm looking at my time, and it's scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, and then it finally gets to me, and there's my, there's my spot, and there's my time, and you know, one of the reasons I love to run the uh, a 5K is it's just easy to measure. I mean, you got a spot. You were slower than these 40 people, about the same speed as this number of people, and you were faster than them. So, had my running app telling me, keeping me up to every quarter mile, you're at this pace, and man, I've slowed down. And so here's where I'm going with this. Living the Christian life in the world is not running a different pace. 
It is a different course altogether. The starting line, the finish line, what you're doing in the race, how you're measuring success is completely different. Your task in the world is to call people to a whole different life. Because you have a whole different life. All the markers of progress. I have this amount of money and they have this amount. Where am I on that? Where am I measuring them with this accumulation of stuff that I can't even cross the finish line with anyway, but we just deceive ourselves. Where, where am I with these other measurements? And you're, you're told constantly, you're bombarded constantly to measure your life this way. And this is the markers. All of the markers of progress in the world are inapplicable to the Christian life. I want to say that again. All the markers of success in the world are inapplicable to the Christian life. So let's conclude the sermon where we kind of started the service. You are either running the course of the fear of man or you're running the course of the fear of God. You can't have dual citizenship. You're not in both at the same time. You're not going to run this a little while and run this a little while. Whose approval and applause do you hope for? Because here's the divine irony. The only way to ever do good to other people is to cease fearing them and fear God so that you can love and serve them. Because now they don't have anything. They don't have anything. This is, this is what love is, by the way. They don't have anything that you need to protect your inheritance. Christ has secured it. It's their approval. Their applause. Or... Their criticism, persecution, it doesn't determine the state of my soul because I've been bought with the precious blood of the Lamb and have been brought from death to life to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It matters who you think is going to be at the finish line, doesn't it? You know who's going to be at the finish line for the exiles, fellow exiles? There's Abraham. Hebrews talks about this. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with endurance. And ultimately, who's, it? Who, who, who's running the race with us? Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him went to the cross despising its shame, trusting the Father. He's the one who set the course for us. Peter's response when he understands it is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to stand. We'll pray together and then have a time of response together. I think maybe the best uh, use of the time is is, is now the Holy Spirit will work using the Word of God to, to bring it to bear really on your real life? Who is it that you fear? What course are you really running? Are you too assimilated, too much like the world? Or are you withdrawn from the world, just trying to count down the days until you're home? Followers of Jesus, salt of the earth, light of the world, persecuted for righteousness' sake. All at the same time. Are you strangely offensive and attractive to people who don't know Jesus? Is your real hope set on the real Lord?
Father, I thank you for Jesus. May we be a people who it's evident that our hope is in the Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.